0: I'd like to provide an overview of this message at the start and just a few introductory comments. Actually, there are four parts to this recorded lesson on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1-16. to 16. The first part of the lesson is an overview of my own spiritual journey and that of my wife Allison related to this particular passage. I think it's important to understand the convictions that we've come to are different from what we were taught in a church we attended for over 30 years. In fact, as we began to grasp the importance of these teachings and put them into practice and then influence others to do likewise, it actually brought some opposition. So we didn't grow up in a church that was advocating these things. The second part of the message, I want to go through the passage that we're looking at here taking a look at key words and concepts and how they would have been understood by the Corinthians to whom the letter was addressed. We'll look at what Paul actually said. He tells Christian men and women to do what he wants them to do and also the reasons that he gives that he wants them to do that, the reasons he gives. Also, we'll consider how this passage has been understood historically by Christians. In the third part of the lesson, I will discuss eight common objections that I've run across and I've heard from other Christians over the years, including especially from church leaders, about why we don't need to follow what this passage says today. So I'm going to mention things that I've heard from elders, ministers, other Bible teachers who want to either disregard or effectively nullify what Paul is saying here. And then the last section, the fourth part of this recording, actually at the very end of the lesson, I opened it up to our small group uh, on Sunday, our house church, and I got quite a few questions and we had a very lively discussion. So I thought it would be helpful to add some of those questions and other questions that I've I've received over the years uh, commonly that uh, may be beneficial to those who are listening online who may be wondering the same things. So the four parts of the message. Now, if some of the things you hear in this lesson are are new to you or different to you, my hope is that you will go back and take the time to study this out for yourself, develop your own convictions from the Word of God, and then put them into practice, whether or not others around you are doing so yet. The Bible must be the standard in all things, not what any particular group says or does. And if you're involved in teaching the Bible in any capacity, for example, if you're an elder, a minister, a Bible teacher, or if you're a father, mother, husband, or an older woman who's teaching others, as it speaks about in Titus chapter 2, this is especially important to understand this. I want to encourage you, please always be respectful to others, and a word to husbands also, Please don't apply any undue pressure to your wife in this area. God is looking for people who want to freely obey Him, who have embraced the biblical teaching on headship in their hearts first and foremost. I want to extend that to what they're wearing on their heads as well. Those who are in the room here, everyone is from a restoration movement background. And... It's, it's interesting to me that of all the, the three basic convictions where people land, one is that the head covering applies today and that, that it's a cloth covering. Uh, the other one that it's uh, the head covering is long hair and then the third one is that it, it's a culturally uh, it was something that was culturally pertinent in, in Corinth in the first century but doesn't apply today is that there's at least one person who holds to each of those convictions in the room here, which makes the discussion much more interesting and pertinent. And we record the lessons, so they go out, and I have no idea who's going to listen to these lessons. So I want to be able to cover everything here, and also to do it very respectfully and and honestly. My convictions on this passage have changed over time, as have as have many of ours, and all I would ask anyone to do is to seek the truth, take a fresh look at the scriptures, and consider what your position is, what your what your conviction is. Study this thing out. About thirty years ago I came into the Church of Christ and as a young Bible talk leader in the church I remember going over to the to visit a very elderly African-American sister who grew up in the Deep South. She was old enough to be my grandmother. Her name was Carrie Richardson. And I remember explaining to Carrie that in, in, in our church, which she had just recently become a member of, she gotten baptized. In, in our church, we do everything just like the Bible says. And she came back with a comment that threw me off at the time, but I've never forgotten. She said, well... She, she she spoke with a deep, southern, African-American accent, which I wouldn't, wouldn't try to imitate, but I can hear her in my own head saying to me, she said, well, if that's the case, why don't the women wear hats in church? And I was thinking, what in the world is she talking about? And then later on, I realized that she was referring to the passage in 1 Corinthians 11, the one that we're going to study today. And I remember asking people, and looking at the time I was, the church The church was, everyone used the NIV, and it was an alternate translation, the NIV, which indicated that perhaps this was long hair. I remember people saying that it was culturally determined, so I never thought about it that much. I was raised Roman Catholic, and I vaguely remember back when I was a young boy attending the Catholic Church in the 1960s, before Vatican II, that women would wear veils or some kind of a hat or a veil or something in church. So I remember that that was back back in my mind, but I wasn't sure how it all fit together. Later on, I ran into through stories, reading pictures, various things. I, I became aware that there were a group of people out there, the Amish and the Mennonites, and of course they would dress in what seemed to me to be very ancient uh, clothing something from more like 100 years ago extremely conservative uh, but the women would cover their heads and but they do it all the time so i'm just these are just different little pieces of the puzzle that were all kind of floating around in my own head and in my own uh, spiritual development regarding this subject then About maybe 15 years ago, I listened to a lesson that David Rousseau gave on what the early Christians believed about the head covering, and that got me thinking much more seriously and going back and looking at the scriptures again. I remember when I was in Albania, uh, Alice and I went on a a mission trip with, with our children, William and Julia, who are both here with us today. The four of us went on a mission trip to Albania, and Albania was... One of the most persecuted anti-Christian countries in the world back in the early 1990s, and the government was overthrown. So it was basically a green field for mission work. That was the, all all the Christianity had been pretty well mown down uh, before that time. And I remember, in teaching the Bible to people, the question would be raised by the Albanian Albanian sisters in the church who were very serious students of the Bible. And they say, First Corinthians 11, why don't we do this part right here, what this says here? So they were people growing up in a predominantly Muslim country, but just reading the Bible on their own, asking the question. And I didn't want to become any more of a troublemaker at that time than I already had a reputation for being so, but I also didn't want to say something that wasn't true. So I said, well... Maybe we should be doing it. Just because we're not doing it doesn't mean we shouldn't be. And I just let it go there. I didn't feel like it was appropriate for me to press the point at that point in time. Several years after that, a very dear friend of mine, Eddie Carlton, was over at the house. Eddie, Eddie is very serious about following the Bible. And, and Eddie and Amy Joy are very, very good friends of ours. They're also from Restoration Movement background. And Eddie asked the question to Allison. He said, well, Allison, why don't you cover your head? Uh, Amy Joy was covering her head, and Allison thought, well, maybe this is a uh, just a, a, a style or a fashion thing. Wasn't sure quite what it was or if it was a religious thing. And Amy said that it was because of what it says in the Bible. And Eddie asked asked. Uh, Eddie's like a part of the family so this is totally okay he, he asked well why don't you do that and, and Allison started asking questions about that and she asked me and I said well actually you are supposed to do that I wasn't pushing the issue uh, when I would go off to pray I had developed convictions about this when i went off to pray pray uh, uh, outdoors I if, I if it was cold outside I'd flip my hood down when I was praying because it says that men need to uncover their heads so uh, I was just quietly going about Doing this this wasn't an issue I was particularly pushing, but Allison asked the question. So we were going to a church where virtually no one among the women put this into practice. So Allison began doing this after studying this out and coming to convictions, and she got some interesting questions and a few glares from, from uh, some, some women as well, and that started other discussions. And so over time, uh, uh, more and more sisters... Took a look at the passage, and just from sharing the scriptures, they started putting it to practice themselves. So that's that's my own background. I remember in the, the very large church that I was in, there was a point in time where we we decided let's let's focus on doing expository preaching. Let's study the book of First Corinthians. So every Sunday we start we do a different chapter in First Corinthians, and so several of us were were just waiting for 1 Corinthians 11. What are they going to do when we get to 1 Corinthians 11? Because obviously hardly anybody in the church among the women is following what it says here. And when we got to 1 Corinthians 11 in the part of the church where I was, the preacher skipped the first half of the chapter. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was uh, rather revealing. He just skipped it and went on to the part about the Lord's Supper. And when he was asked later, he said, Well, I just didn't have time to co- to cover everything. Clearly he didn't want to deal with it. So I, I followed up and I said, Well, we really need to study this out as a leadership. I don't want to be causing division in the church, but this is part of the Bible. Let's study it out and let's let's do that. But let's stop ignoring this. I even at one point in time I said, Look, why don't we just at least have somebody presenting the case why we should do it and why and somebody else can present a case why we shouldn't do it let's just stop ignoring the passage so uh, for one reason or another that while i was a member of the church for many many years that that never came about i don't know if if that's happened since that time so this is really for me to be able to present a lesson on first corinthians in a setting like this is a real blessing for me and something i've wanted to do for many many years so I'm excited about it. Let's start by reading the passage, 1 Corinthians 11. And I'm reading from the New King James, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read the entire section to start off. Starting at verse 1. Uh, Paul's writing, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so, man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you? that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. A few things just to start off with. Let's, Let's start with the first few verses here. It says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you, re- you that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, I was raised uh, early on in the faith to think of tradition as a kind of a bad word, a, a, a bad idea, because I'm thinking of Matthew chapter 15 or Mark chapter 7, where I was taught that tradition, uh, We're supposed to hold to the word of God, not the traditions of men. Well, the word tradition is used in multiple senses in Scripture. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's used in a positive sense. Paul talks about tradition just means something that was handed down. So Paul talks about the faith that was handed down by the apostles, which was that Jesus suffered and died on the cross, was buried and raised on the third day. He said, this was what was handed down to you. That's a good thing. That's a tradition. The same word is used there. Another example, uh, in in 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about things that were handed down by the apostles that that they need to hold on to, whether they're handed down by word of mouth or by letter, either way. So something is handed down by the apostles an apostolic tradition is different than just something that's handed down by a group of religious leaders. So Jesus says, obviously, we have to follow the word of God, not through traditions of men. But a tradition just means something that's handed down. So it's, it's a neutral word. So here he's saying, you keep the traditions or the things handed down just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God, in verse 3. So he starts off talking about headship. The word head, just like in English, can have several different meanings and used in several different senses. For example, if you want to talk about what the headwaters of the Nile River or the Mississippi River would be the origin, where it comes from. So the head can be used in that sense. Head can also be used in a sense of authority. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, let's look there, see how that word is used. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, Let wives also be to their own husbands in everything. So their headship is used by Paul discussing Christ and the church and husbands and wives. Obviously, in that sense, he's using it in the sense of authority and submission. So in either case... I think in either either way you want to look at it, it applies, but it would seem in context that it falls a lot more in line with the idea of, of authority is what he has in mind here. Now, the head of Christ is God. We know that Christ came from the Father. The Father did not come from Christ. Christ has his origin in the Father. And... That woman came from man, man did not come from woman in the story of Genesis chapter 2, in the story of the creation. So the idea of origin is there, but also the idea of, of, of headship is there too. So what he, he sets up, that the, the head of, there's an order here, that the, that the head of Christ is the Father, is God. He's not denying the divinity of Christ, but he's he's saying that Christ is in submission to the Father. Jesus prayed that his Father's will would be done, not his own. So he came from the Father. He was divine. He was not created, but he was in submission to the Father. The Father was the head of Christ. So... Uh, we don't believe Christians, We don't Orthodox Christians, we don't believe in modalism, that, that God just changes from one form, He changes from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit, but that there is a structure to the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which is, which is uh, captured here. And he says, The head of every man of Christ, is Christ, and the head of woman is man. And then he says, in verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now, he just said the head of every man is Christ. Mm-hmm. So, what happens if a man prays with his head covered? Whatever, well, let's set aside what the, what the idea of what, what covering of the head means, if it's long hair or a cloth covering or a hat, whatever. What happens there? What happens is, it says he's dishonoring his head, he's dishonoring Christ. And he says, every man who does that. Does this sound like something that's just directed to the people in Corinth, or it's a universal concept? It's it's, it's universal, it's embedded in the nature of creation. It's embedded in the order of creation, the order of the universe. Every man praying or prophesying with his head, covered dishonors his head, which is Christ. So it's dishonoring to Christ to do that. Verse 5, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that's one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. For it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Now, in this passage... I think of the Bible as kind of like a building that's made out of bricks. And the bricks are the words. And if the words are no good, then the building's going to crumble as well. So you need to understand, what do the words mean? The words like head. There's some some critical words in this passage. What does the word head mean? What does a cover mean? What does shorn mean? Because they all tie into, if you want to, if you can redefine these words, you can come up with a totally different meaning of the passage. But what do those words mean? And I want to know not what do I want them to mean, not what did the group that I was raised in say that they meant, but what did they mean to the people who were reading this letter? What did those words or those terms mean to them? I'm I'm a curious person, and and I have a a, a distrust for everybody's religious agenda, so I want to go back to primary sources and find out what do these words actually mean. And... The, uh, the words that are used here are used lots of other places in Scripture. The word covering, I think this is the only place it's used in the New Testament, but in the Greek Old Testament, which was the Old Testament used by the Christians in the beginning, in which the apostles and even Jesus are quoting from, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, this word appears all over the place. It appears a lot. So the apostles are quoting from the Septuagint. It's totally okay for me too as well. And actually there are several places in the New Testament where you're reading from the Septuagint you just don't realize it because that's what the apostles are quoting from. I'll give you one example. In Acts chapter 8, and actually it ties into this passage that we're reading right here. Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch is traveling along in the chariot reading from Isaiah the prophet. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 30, says, Philip ran up to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scriptures which he read was this, and this is from Isaiah chapter 53, of course. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice is taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say of this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began, and at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. So he's reading from Isaiah 53. But actually, this is a word-for-word, letter-for-letter quotation from the Septuagint. And the word that's used here, which also shows up in, in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, As a lamb before the shearer is silent. So the word that's used as shorn there is the same word. It appears many places in the, the, in the Greek Old Testament, so when the Corinthians run into that word. He says, if a woman does not cover her head, let her be shorn. The word here is referring to as a lamb before the shearers is silent. So you get the picture here. This word actually appears many places in the Greek Old Testament. The word for for being shorn. And generally it refers to sheep. For example, Laban is out shearing his sheep in Genesis or the 12 sons of Jacob, they're out shearing the sheep or somebody else's, people are shearing the sheep and this is the word that's used. Now, when you shear a sheep, do you get the razor out and cut all its hair off? No, when you shear a sheep, you, you clip it really close. That's what you do. So it's kind of like, think of it as like a buzz cut. If you had electric shears, like today, what they would do is it's not... It's not shaving. there's a different word that goes... The word that's used for razor is... is, But So it says, if a woman doesn't cover her head, let her be short. Just like what you do to the sheep. So what does that tell you right there? Let's think about that. If a woman... Now, if the head covering is short hair, let's just... Let's just... Let's just... Let's assume that and run it out there. Because I had... Yeah, you know, I had an and I have an NIV Bible at home, and it has that as an alternate translation as long hair. So it, it would say, if a woman has short hair, let her be shorn. You should go ahead if she doesn't want to cover her head. You should shear her, shear her hair, cut it back. So does that make any sense at all? Not really. <laughs> okay. But we can see that by just seeing how this word is used. You don't need a a Bible dictionary. You can just see, uh, you can get an apostolic polyglot Bible which has all the Old Testament and New Testament words. Do a word study for yourself and see where this word is used and you get a very clear picture of what it means. Another word that's used in the passage is the word that's used for covering. There are two different words that are used for covering in 1 Corinthians 11. The first word that's used for covering in this passage is... Uh, I, hate, I hate to pull the Greek out, but just just I think it's important because so much hangs on these words. It's katakalupto, it's, uh, which means covering. I think this is the only place in the New Testament it's used, but it's used throughout the Old Testament in, in, the, the, in the Greek Old Testament. And I'll give you some examples that it's used. Genesis chapter 38 in verse 15. to see what this word means by how it's used in context. You can tell the meaning of a word by the company <coughs> it keeps. So let's just see how it's used, what it means. Genesis chapter 38 for covering here because this is an important concept. <coughs> Genesis 38 verse 12. This is the story of Tamar who is in, actually in the lineage of Jesus and mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers in Timnah, and he and his shepherd, Hira uh, the the Adolamite. And so it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Thus she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil and made herself beautiful, sat down near the gates of Anun, on the way past Timnah, for the she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judas saw her, he thought she was a prostitute because she had covered her face and he didn't recognize her. The word cover that's used there is the same word that it says that a woman needs to cover her head. It's the same word in Greek. So she covered her face, so he didn't recognize her. Do you think that she was pulling her hair over her face. What do you picture there when you read that passage? She, she was it, it talks about it in, in the passage here. Uh, she covers herself with a veil, and then it says that because she was covered, he didn't recognize her. So in this case, she's covering her face, not just her head. So that's one place where the word is used. Another place where the word is used is in Isaiah chapter 6, This is a familiar passage. The vision that that Jesus refers to this, the Gospel of John, it's the vision that Isaiah saw in the throne room. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. The house was full of his glory. Around him stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. It's the same word, cover there. So you get the picture. Uh, there's a place in, in Isaiah 11 where it says, verse 9. This is also the same word used in the Septuagint. They shall not hurt nor be able to destroy anyone on my holy mountain, for the whole world shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as much as water covers the seas. So you're getting a sense of what the word means by how it's used. Another helpful example where the same Greek word translated cover in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 6 and 7 is used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, is in 2 Chronicles chapter 18 verses 28 and 29. And here I'm following the apostolic polyglot Bible translation of the Septuagint here. In this passage, King Ahab of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah are about to go into a battle together against the king of Syria. In this case, Ahab knew that he was going to be the target of the enemy, so he wanted to enter the battle in disguise. So Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, I shall cover up and enter into the battle, but you put on my clothes. Then Ahab then it says that Ahab covered up and entered into the battle. Consequently, at first the opposing army is confused because they can't tell who is the real king Ahab. So this is same use of the word uh, that's translated cover for someone covering their heads, give you an idea that he would he would uh, put some cloth over so the people couldn't tell who he was. In this case covering uh, covering himself up. From these stories Tamar covering up by her face, covering her head up by her veil in Genesis, the seraphim covering up parts of their bodies with their wings in Isaiah 6, and then last king Ahab covering himself so he could be he would be unrecognized in the battle of 2 Chronicles. I think we get a clear picture of the meaning of the word in question here, which is the Greek word katakalupto. The word simply means to cover something up with the idea that you can't see what's underneath it. So let's keep those word pictures in mind that we see when we see the word is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11. So he says, verse 4, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head that as one is the same as if her head were shaved. So, looking at the meaning of the words used, looking at the logic of does this set make sense? Does this make any sense? If he says if if it's long hair, if he says men have to have if what he's saying is men have to have short hair, he says okay, man, you need to have short hair when you're praying or prophesying. So. What is he saying there? Does that make any sense at all? Imagine a man has long hair, so you have to take your long hair off and have short hair when you're praying and prophesying, and then you put your, put your hair back on again. If he wanted men to have short hair all the time, he why wouldn't he just say that? Men need to have short hair. He just says, when you pray and prophesy. So There's also the historical argument. Tertullian lived, he was born about 100 years after 1 Corinthians was written, so it's not that far down the road historically. I mean, 100 years, you can know somebody who knew somebody 100 years ago. My grandfather fought uh, and was, was drafted in World War I, so it's not that long ago. That was 100 years ago. 100, 100 years is basically one, one long generation will cover it. <clears throat> Tertullian is writing. He's in North Africa, and there's a question about head covering. Everybody understood that head covering was a cloth covering that covered the head. There were questions about how extensive does it need to be? And there were other questions were does the head covering requirement apply to young unmarried w- women? Does it apply to virgins or is it only applied to married women? Because the Greek language there is no word separate word for wife. The word woman And wife are one and the same. So if I wanted to say she is a woman or Allison is my woman, if they would understand it as being wife. We lived in Albania, it's the same thing. There's only one word, and it's totally a matter of context. So people reading 1 Corinthians are saying, well, does this apply to young single women or not? And Tertullian makes the case. He says, listen, you can just look and see what they're doing in Corinth, the people who receive the letter, they certainly understand the language, and they're still following the instructions that Paul gave them, which is that they're using a cloth covering, and he says that they're applying it to all women, to the single unmarried women, the virgins, as well as to the married women. So he was making the case from that. that he's saying, go back to the churches that were founded by the apostles, see what they're doing, and then you can particularly go back to Corinth to to whom 1 Corinthians 11 was addressed. So there's the historic argument as well. Paul ties his argument here to the creation account of men and women, that woman came from man. He doesn't tie it to local customs in Corinth. And then at the end, he says, we have no... Other custom in the churches. We have no such custom, and I think in the, in, the, in in some translation says we have no other customs. He's basically saying, look, this is the way it is worldwide in all of the churches, and you Corinthians are not in step with what's going on everywhere else. This practice that women would cover their heads when they pray was observed pretty universally, in the East and in the West for 1,900 years. So this is basically, for over 1,900 years, so basically 95% of Christian history, everyone understood what this passage meant. They took it at face value, and they took it consistently with how these words are used everywhere else in the scriptures and consistently with history. It's only been within the last 50 to 100 years, that this has come under attack, historically. What happened was, the head covering, which initially was either a veil or a bonnet, something simple like that, in the 1900s became, turned into a fashion accessory, into a hat, and then, in the late 1900s, and then moving into the 20th century, it uh, started getting uh, set aside, In the Catholic Church, where, where I was raised, it was it, it held up until the 1960s. So it's fairly recent. Uh, just, just you don't realize that, but when you look at the sweep of history, and you can you can certainly do some uh, some research on your own. So he ties it to Genesis to the creation account, which is independent of time and culture. It's universal. The other thing he says is because of the angels. He says in verse 8, For man is not from woman, but woman from man. That goes back to Genesis 2. Verse 9, Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, what does that mean, because of the angels? Now, angels, whatever it means... It's obviously not tied to local custom. I don't think that the angels in Corinth are different than the angels that are here today. They're the same angels everywhere in the world. Whatever the reason is, it's because of the angels. I've heard two explanations. I don't know which one is correct. I don't know if either of them are correct, but I'll, I'll lay them out here. They're both plausible. One of is the Bible talks about the angels who fell. Peter talks about that in Second Peter. Jude refers to them as well. The angels who fell, some people would tie that back into the story of, of the flood in Genesis chapter 6. But the idea that the it's tied in with the angels who fell, and there was a long-standing belief that in Genesis 6, where it says that the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men, that is talking about angels and, uh, coming down and having relations with women, and that they were then punished as a result of that, and that perhaps in some sense this is tied into the fall of the angels and their relation with women. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's one thing historically that has has been held. The other one is that an awareness that we are in the presence of angels all the time. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Jesus talked about the, the, the angels of the children always see their father's face in heaven. So... That angels came down and intervened and helped Jesus while he was in agony in the garden. That the angels are ministering spirits sent to help those who are to inherit salvation, which is us. So the the angels are involved in the spiritual battle, the spiritual war, the good angels, and that for some reason that this reflection of the, order of the order of the universe is important in the angelic sphere. Whatever it is, I want the angels on my side. I don't want to alienate them, and I want to respect that. But he says one of the reasons is because of the angels, which is clearly outside of culture. The other thing is it says she should have a symbol of authority on her head. In verse 10, I've heard two explanations of this. I don't know which one is correct. In, in, in my translation here, it has a symbol of in italics, which means it's not actually in the text, but the translators are adding it in there. So it can be translated as a woman ought to have either a symbol of authority or a woman ought to have an authority on her head. So I've heard it explained possibly that this is a sign of submission, or, I've heard it explained the other way, that the authority is, in a different sense, that the authority is something that belongs to the woman, not a sign of her being under someone else, but this is an authority that belongs to the woman, that she has a right to appeal directly to God herself as well, then that this is a sign of her authority to do that. But either way, this is something that has significance in the spiritual and angelic realm. Verse 11, neither, nevertheless, neither is man independent woman or woman independent of man in the Lord. For as a woman came from man, so man also comes from woman, but all things are from God. So he's saying here very clearly, men and women are interdependent on each other. That men can't be looking down on women, men, women can't be looking down on men. That just as woman came from man, that man, men come from woman. And all things are from God. Verse thirteen: Judge among yourselves. After he's made the case, talking about the creation, the angels, the order of the universe, he then challenges them: Judge for yourselves—is a proper for one to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered. And then he uses, after the first three arguments, he uses the argument of nature. Does not even nature itself teach you if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him, but if a woman here has long hair, it's a glory to her. So this is a, uh, historically, for some reason, which I don't understand, in virtually every culture in the world, men have shorter hair than women do. I don't know why that is, but it seems to be a universal thing that women... Even in cultures where men have long hair, I had pretty long hair, as my children can attest, who've seen pictures of me back from the 1970s when I was in school, I had really long hair. The women had longer hair than even the men with long hair do, so he uses the argument from nature. And then in verse fifteen, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, unfortunately, there are two different words that are used. He uses a different, totally different word here for covering, and the word that he uses here is a word that means basically a wrap around, like a cloak. But uh, it's used in, in Hebrews chapter uh, chapter one verse twelve, quoting from Psalm uh, one hundred two. 101-102. Uh, well, let, let's let's look there. Hebrews chapter 1. It's another quotation from Septuagint. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 10. You, Lord, laid the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. Verse 12, it says a cloak. It's basically, it's literally, it means a Something you throw around yourself. So it's a different, it's a different word that's used there. So it says that women have as this throw around themselves, they have long hair. So you don't see that in English, but he's using two different words that are used totally differently throughout scripture. And it's translated in many translations both as covering. So he's saying, Women, you have this wrap-around or this throw around type of covering in terms of your hair. So you also need to have the other covering as well. So look, looking at, looking at the, the explanation, which I believe is totally consistent with the historical understanding, with the, the, the angels, with the story of creation, with the meanings of the word covering, with how it was applied and practiced in, in the first century, I, I want to give you some of the, the reasons that I've heard for why we don't have to deal with this passage right here. Number one, I've heard it said, said, this is a very complicated passage. It's really hard to understand. Well, actually, Paul tells us here, he says, who needs to do what, when, and why? So, And there's no other passage in Scripture which contradicts this or says anything about it. So actually, I think this is one of the easiest passages in the Bible, honestly, to understand. And for Nineteen centuries, people didn't have a problem with understanding it. It's only in modern times that people have had difficulty with it. But There's no issues with this being in disharmony with other scriptures. It, it, it doesn't, it, it's, it's not a problem there. The second reason I've heard, this is the opposite reason, say, well, this, this is a one-off. This is only mentioned once in the scriptures, once in the Bible, so how important can it be because it's only mentioned once? Well, how many times does God have to say something for it to be true? How many times? Once, so that, that's that's really a that's that's really a very weak argument. God says something once; it's true. He doesn't have to tell us five times. The other one, the third one, saying that the covering is long hair. We talked about that. You know, if that was the case, he'd, if the covering was long hair, he'd say, "Men, take your hair long hair off when you pray and prophesy." And he'd be saying, "Women, if you have short hair, you need to have your hair shorn." That does neither one of them makes any sense at all. And historically, that was not uh, how it was understood from the beginning. The fourth one is, this was just, okay, it was a, it was a, it was a cloth covering, but this was a, a custom in ancient Corinth that no longer applies today. Well, Paul gives several reasons. None of them have to do with ancient customs in Corinth. None of the reasons that he gives. Paul says, here's what you need to do, and here's why you need to do it. Is Paul lying to us? Was there really another reason why they had to do it? Or is Paul giving the real reasons why they had to do it? It has to do with the angels, and it has to do with the creation of man. This whole idea that this was an ancient custom, I've asked people who have read very extensively who say that this was just an ancient custom. And I said, can you give me one unambiguous primary source which indicated that there was a custom in ancient Corinth like this that Paul is referring to? It, it, it's been dead silent. I've asked people who have, who have PhDs, who've, who've written master's papers on, on, on this subject, And come down to a different conclusion and say, can you give me any primary source evidence? I'd like one, at least, that's clear. And and they can't. There's a great article by Bruce Terry, No Such Custom. Bruce Terry did his Ph.D. thesis. He's a a Church of Christ uh, Bible chair at a, a Church of Christ college. He did his doctoral thesis on 1 Corinthians. And if you go to his website, there's a paper called No Such Custom, which is very well done. And uh, very well footnoted, also he did his doctoral thesis on 1 Corinthians, and it was a linguistic and cultural analysis of 1 Corinthians. And he went through what were the ancient customs in Greece, in Rome, and among the Hebrews. And what Paul is calling the Christians to do here was a distinctive Christian custom that did not line up with anything that any of those other three cultures were doing. The other problem with the whole thing about, well, this is an ancient custom and it no longer applies today. Well, let's take that logic and that rationale and apply to what Paul says about women speaking in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Or what Paul says about, he says, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Was that cultural? What Paul is saying about homosexuality, was that cultural? What Paul was saying about remarriage after divorce was this cultural, what Jesus was saying. The problem is if we teach anything that's countercultural, if we excuse this, where does it end? The biggest challenge for the church today and in any generation is to take the hard teachings of Jesus and the apostles and preach them without excuse or without apology to the people in our generation. That's the hard work of preaching the gospel. That's preaching the gospel out of season. Another excuse is say, well, Paul said it, not Jesus. I'm just going to follow the red letters here. Well, it's just Paul's opinion. Well, what we, 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 Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality. Are we, going to, are we going to throw that out too, say anything that Paul says? Jesus said in John 14 and 16 that after his departure, the Holy Spirit would teach the apostles all things and lead them into all truth. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter affirms that Paul writes with God-given wisdom, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So we can't set aside the the directives given by an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit. Number six, this is one of my my favorite ones. This is the... uh, they say, "Well, okay, this may be a command, but certainly it's not a salvation issue. It's not a salvation issue. I mean, certainly I can, I can, I can disregard this with impunity without without my salvation being in jeopardy." Well, I'll tell you a little parable, a little short parable here. Uh, this is the parable of of the two obedient sons. This is one that I've made up. A father goes to two sons and he says, there are several things I'd like you to do. Could you please take out a paper and pencil? And so he, he starts dictating the things he wants his sons to do before he comes back. And he noticed that one son is making one list, but the other son is making two lists. And he says, why are you making two lists here? He says, well, I'm making two lists because on the left hand column is the things that I'll be disinherited for. If I don't do. But the right hand is the ones I can get away with. If I don't do. Which son loves his father? Which son loves his father? And which one is the legalist? In 1 John chapter 5. In verse 3. John says. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Do we really believe that? This is the test of loving God as we obey the great commandments and the lesser commandments. When Jesus laid out the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, he said, You have to follow the most important commandments, but don't neglect the lesser ones either. He didn't say, Follow the important ones and forget about the lesser ones. You need to follow everything because this this is the sign that we really love God if we obey everything he says, the big things and the small things. Another one I hear, and an elder came up to me and said, well, I realize you have different convictions than I do about, about head covering, but certainly we can agree that this is a disputable matter, bringing up shades of Romans 14. And my response was, well, did the Apostle Paul who wrote Romans 14 consider head covering to be a disputable matter? Did he consider it to be a disputable matter? Or did he did he tell the Corinthian women, look, as long as you follow your conscience, you want to wear a head covering, go ahead. You don't want to wear a head, just as long as you're following your conscience, it's, it, you're good. Did Paul say that? No, he didn't. Paul thought this was an important enough issue that he devoted the first half of chapter 11, to correcting this problem in the church. So this is not, in the sense of Romans 14, a disputable matter, just because people are disobeying what it says. And then the last one. Uh, David and I sat down with uh, uh, some, some church leaders to have a discussion about this. And Dave, maybe you can remember this. And we presented why we believe that this is relevant and we need to follow it and and. People who had different convictions uh, presented the other position, and one of the brothers that was there, it was leader in the church, said, "He said this was his explanation. He said my wife is a spiritual woman, and she doesn't cover her head when she prays. That was his explanation, which is it's shocking to me." that someone would have that attitude. However, actually, I think it's a really common attitude. I think most people look around and see what's everybody doing. What are the people I know doing? I was asked to, to give a message in a house church where the guy who was leading it, the brother who was leading the house church, was, had been raised Old Order Amish. He had 11 children. And I'm sitting in his living room, And the women are dressed in cape dresses and with with, with head coverings on, conservative head coverings. Before I went down, I said, what would you like me to give a lesson on? He said, I'd like you to give a lesson on head covering. And my first, second, and third reaction were, you have got to be kidding. I mean, of all the people in the world, you folks are the ones who are still following this, and you want me to teach on head covering? You, You can't be serious. He said, no, I do, because you didn't come from this background. He said, the reason my children are doing it and the reason the people in our culture do it is because that's what everybody does. He says, they don't understand the reason why. So they may be doing it, but they don't understand the reason they can't defend it. He said, what happens is when people are exposed to people from other churches, they can't defend the reason why this is important and why they have to do it. And so I thought, well, okay. So I, I actually, the first lesson I ever taught on head covering was, was to a family of people from Amish <laughs> background, which was, which was very unusual. So we can't take any comfort by just looking around what people we respect are doing. The standard always has to be the Word of God. So I really want to encourage everyone here to go back look at the scriptures, study this out. Do what it takes. If you want to look at the historical background, you want to listen to what what the early, how the early Christians understood this passage, David Brousseau has a great message, what the early Christians believed about head covering. If you want to look at, at what uh, Tertullian uh, said in the, the second century about this passage, is that there's a, uh, on the veiling of virgins, is in the Ananiacine Fathers, you can read that. So Study this out, seek the truth, and, and let's have hearts that, that really want to obey the important things of God as well as what we consider to be the lesser things of God. God's commands are not burdensome. Amen. Now, following the end of the lesson that you just heard, we turned off our audio recorder and had a lively discussion on what had just been taught in our house church on Sunday. Some great questions were asked then, and more questions came later on in the day. Now, since those listening to this recording may have some of the very same questions, I thought it'd be a good idea to add a short segment to discuss questions of this kind. So I'm going to pick three questions that were raised. The first question was, when do women need to wear head coverings? Do women need to wear them all the time? meaning basically all day, not when you're sleeping. Do they need to wear it all the time, just like they do in some groups? And I can think particularly of conservative Anabaptist, Mennonite, or Amish circles. Or do they just need to wear it when they're in church, or just when they pray and prophesy? And then what does that mean, to prophesy? Well, let's go back to the text. Paul only says that women need to cover their heads, quote, when they pray and prophesy. And men need to uncover their heads at those same times. Now, when I was in Pennsylvania earlier this year visiting my daughter, who was working in Lancaster County, we went into the Lancaster Farmer's Market, and some of the people working the booths there, by their dress you can tell that they were Amish uh, from their clothing and their, and their, uh, their, their head coverings. The women wore head coverings all the time. However, it was interesting to me that the men were wearing straw hats. And I noticed that men from wearing straw hats while they're working on the land doing physical labor as well in Lancaster County. So my question is, if women need to wear hats all the time or head coverings, wouldn't the same thing apply would mean that men could never wear hats? It just seems logical to me. Now, I'm not here to criticize the, the uh, conservative Anabaptists. Uh, I have many great friends in that environment in that, in that circle. And if women choose to cover their heads all the time, I think that, that that's fine, if that's what they want to do. My wife covers her head uh, most of the time, almost, almost all the time, because she finds it to be she's found it to be inconvenient to be searching for a covering when she wants to pray. I appreciate that the scriptures do admonish us to pray without ceasing and to be praying in all kinds of situations. So women who want to be ready to pray at any point in time uh, may choose to wear a head covering all the time. And amen, that's great. However, based on what 1 Corinthians 11 says, I personally can't see how anyone could bind that on someone. So I would just encourage women to do what it says, to cover your heads when you pray and prophesy, and uh, beyond that, to, to follow your conscience as far as far as that goes. Now, it doesn't say, some groups will just apply this to when you're in church. Now, it doesn't say that. It just says when you pray or when you prophesy. So, praying is speaking to God. Prophesying is proclaiming the Word of God to other people. So, as I would look at the passage and think about how it would be a natural way to apply it, if, if a woman is teaching other women or is, is sharing the Word of God with some other women, then that would be appropriate for her to be covering her head at that time as well, if she's speaking to God or if she's proclaiming the Word of God to other people. Now, I've also heard people in some groups say that a head covering is a woman's testimony. It's basically her sign to the world that she is a Christian And for that reason, she should wear it all the time and that she shouldn't be ashamed to display this to the world as a sign that she's a Christian. However, Paul doesn't say that women need to cover their heads all the time, nor does he say, cover your heads whenever you're out in public. He doesn't say that. Let's just go by what the Word of God says. The other thing is he says that they need to cover their heads because of the angel's not because of the non-Christian pagan public. Jesus actually warned us that religious people shouldn't be displaying our religion publicly in his comments about the Pharisees, who prominently displayed their phylacteries, their indication that they were fasting, and the way that they gave alms. In the Sermon on the Mount, he points us in another direction in our piety, Certainly Christian and women and men need to be distressed modestly at all times and in all cultures, regardless of how much that doesn't fit in with the culture that we're in. However, Paul says that the head covering is for the angels, not as a sign to unbelievers. Second question that was raised was, what constitutes an appropriate head covering? I think that's a great question. Would it be anything on the head? How much of a a woman's head is supposed to actually be covered? A very good question. It's hard for me to give a, a very confident answer on this, but I will give it my best approach, and you have to understand this is only my opinion. Tertullian back in his day, in the early 200s, was lamenting the fact that some women seemed to think just a couple of threads crossing over the top of the head or something the size of the palm of the hand was sufficient. And if you think of the pictures of the way the word covering is used in the scriptures and the Old Testament examples given, I can understand his concern there. Again, it's ironic to me that some of the groups that have most steadfastly hung on to the idea of traditional head coverings, the, the coverings that they wear are practically transparent. They're kind of a see-through fabric in some circles. So I think the idea of a covering is it's supposed to actually cover up uh, the, the, the top of the head, not the face. Regarding the extent of the head covering, Paul says that if a woman doesn't want to cover her head, let her head be shorn. So my personal assumption, I can't bind this on anyone, would be that a head covering is for the purpose of covering up a woman's hair so you couldn't see it. I don't want to become part of the head-covering police in establishing standards and rules for this sort of thing. And coming from a Church of Christ background, I can think about baptism as being a parallel. And in and, and, and the circles that I've traveled and people would ask questions, well, what if uh, a person is completely immersed except for, uh, let's say, their pinky, their little finger, or their hand, or a fingernail? Does a person have to be completely immersed to be baptized? Now, Uh, And and you say, well, that seems ridiculous. And what if you go to the other end of just sprinkling someone with a few drops of water? Well, rather than try to draw a line, let's have a heart to try to understand the intention behind Paul's direction and simply have an obedient heart not try to cut any corners here. So I don't want to turn this into a complicated or legalistic thing, but simply have a heart to obey and, uh, and, and cover the head. Third question that was raised is, what actually was the practice in the ancient world regarding head covering? So, as I explained in the lesson, Paul gives several reasons why Christians need to follow the head covering or uncovering direction that was provided. None of those reasons have to do with local customs. However, despite this, people have, reading in study Bibles and modern commentaries, they run across statements that indicate that, that this was, Paul was calling them to follow some ancient custom that existed in Corinth at the time. So maybe you've run into comments like that and, and you'd like to, to know what was the custom in ancient Corinth. Was there any such custom at all? Well, Bruce Terry, who's the Bible chair at Ohio Valley University, a Church of Christ college, actually did his doctoral dissertation at the University of Texas on a linguistic and cultural analysis of 1 Corinthians. In his research, he investigated what were the local customs in ancient times. He went back to primary sources, and he footnotes all of the sources used. And you can read it for yourself, he's posted in his doctoral dissertation at his own personal website, along with the paper No Such Custom, he looked at not only ancient writers, but also looked at the information that's been gathered on pictures, including on Greek vases of women in ancient times in Greece. And Bruce Terry provides in, his, in, in the, uh, the thesis that I read, which is footnoted and with several examples quoted, he provides numerous examples to disprove the modern myth that you'll find in commentaries that a woman going bareheaded in ancient Corinth was a sign of loose morals or prostitution. It certainly was not. If you're encouraged, I encourage you to go back and read this section of his dissertations in chapter 2. I'm going to quote from the conclusion of that section. Bruce Terry summarizes that. Uh, noting that this, there was a wide range of cultural practices in the ancient world in the first century, especially in a very multicultural city like Corinth. I'm quoting from, from what he wrote. He said, The significance of this difference of custom regarding women's headdress in the ancient world is it shows there was no uniform practice, especially in Greece, where women often appeared without a head covering in religious rites. The evidence seems to indicate in the first century among the Romans, both men and women covered their head in worship, while among the Greeks, both men and women uncovered their heads in worship. Thus, the tradition which Paul advocated in 1 Corinthians 11 was, contrary to popular opinion, not grounded in social customs in Corinth, but actually opposed to them. That's the end of the quotation. So again, I hope in conclusion to this lesson that it has been helpful to you, if some of the things presented are new here, please take the time and, and go out and study, put it into practice, and spread this kingdom teaching. But please do it with love and respect to others, especially husbands towards your wives, and Uh, Men and women need to be restoring and following biblical teachings here and everywhere in the Bible out of love and respect for the Word of God and a heartfelt desire to reflect what Paul explains about headship. And people should not be doing this because they feel pressured by other people to conform outwardly. May God help all of us as we pursue this goal.